This episode of Gen C is sponsored by Chainalysis. Gen C is the generation of the new internet. In Gen C, the C stands for crypto, but it also stands for creators, the connected consumer and collectibles, both digital and physical with on-chain provenance. It stands for culture and characters, the ones we play in games and the companion ones that AI is building alongside us. It stands for community and digital citizenship and the new set of transparent and trustless tools being built to govern them. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they look at the hybrid, digital, and physical spaces being built all around us. And finally, how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how brands, large and small, are building for these audiences. Welcome to Gen C. Avery, I can't believe I spent an entire week in Miami for Art Basel and did not see you one time. That is truly tragic, Sam. It seemed like you were everywhere. I was also running all over the city too. And it's devastating we didn't get to hang out in person or to a Gen C Live, which is something I know we had talked about. We had talked about that. We will hopefully make that happen at an event coming soon. I want to get into our Art Basel recap and cover some stories. But I got to tell you, I thought New York or Los Angeles had the worst traffic. <laughs> Miami at this point during our Basel, I like, I need a helicopter. I don't understand how you can manage this experience of trying to get from one place to another with like one two-lane highway that gets you everywhere. Right. What's up with that? Um, I will tell you that that is not the typical Miami traffic. I think it is something that we face only during Basel season or maybe F1. Come to Miami in the summer and I promise you won't sit in traffic for a minute, Sam. But then I have to be in Miami in the summer and it's like 190 degrees. So No, this is a common misconception. I very frequently compare the weather in Miami in the summer to the weather in New York in the summer. It's almost always cooler in Miami. All that water. All right. More humid though. Definitely more humid. Chainalysis is the premier blockchain data platform. Crypto businesses, financial institutions, and government agencies utilize Chainalysis data and services to answer their biggest questions about the blockchain. As regulators and policymakers work together to pass legislation that provides clarity for crypto businesses and protects consumers, they have the chance to do so with unparalleled data and research into the crypto ecosystem. Demystify cryptocurrency and gain greater visibility and insight by visiting Chainalysis.com slash Gen C. I do want to talk Art Basel, but first I wanted to talk a couple of other stories with you because I thought there was some interesting stuff that happened this week and I wanted your opinions. For our audience, we had a lovely guest announced who had an illness and couldn't join. So we are rescheduling for later in the month. But Avery and I thought it would be great for us to really break down what happened at Art Basel and some of the other big stories happening in crypto right now. The first one that I wanted to talk to you about, Avery, was, I don't know if you saw this, but the EU has created something called the AI Act, which is kind of the first major attempt to regulate AI. And, you know, I have a feeling this is coming across the globe. And the EU, just as we saw with GDPR, also often is in front of how people can manage this. And the AI Act seems to be something that is kind of both interesting and also kind of feels a bit archaic and how they're understanding things like LLMs and what constitutes AI and all of that. But I guess I wanted to get your sense. I know we had Chris from Adobe on recently, and I thought that was really interesting what they're working on and how they're trying to protect people who are utilizing their systems. 
But what is like your approach as someone who is so focused on innovation, marketing, advertising, and this new technology, when it comes to the idea that we still don't know so much about how it's going to roll out in municipalities around the world? Yeah, I think ethical AI has been a huge area of focus for Boehner and many of our partners over the last several years, but especially the last 18 months, as we've seen, you know, AI used for good and also AI used in challenging situations. Not surprised that the EU is at the forefront of regulating this. I believe it was Italy last year tried to ban ChatGPT and they, you know, soon found out that was not going to be possible. But I think Europeans, very broadly speaking, are much more cautious around leaning heavily into these types of technology than Americans are. GDPR, of course, as you mentioned, paved the way for the way a lot of sort of American multinational companies thought about collecting user data and interfacing with consumers digitally. And, you know, back to my Google days, I remember Europe was always kind of nipping at the heels of Google, particularly in Europe. And, you know, I think a lot of tech companies have felt that as well. There are certain features, you know, whether it's Google or Meta, that are not available in certain European markets just due to the way that they think about it. So not shocked that this is coming from them first. But also... I don't think that it's a bad thing to be thoughtful around regulating AI and making sure that, you know, European citizens or the population more broadly is protected against, you know, some of the powers of this technology. So I need to fully study up on the ins and outs of it, but it's something that I know my legal team has been paying a lot of attention to. And, you know, even for global brands and companies who are launching these campaigns, if you're launching a worldwide campaign, you've got to be really thoughtful around, you know, if you're allowing European users to participate, being in compliance with all these laws, which are, you know, unfolding just behind the technology which is actually getting used by consumers. We know that like the laws always take a little bit of time to catch up to like where technology and innovation actually is, but you know with the right intentions I think it can be a good thing. I think one of the things that's most interesting in this act for me was that they are specifically calling out biometric data, right? So the fact that a lot of folks are utilizing AI in things like face recognition to be able to then predetermine things, everything from gender, they're trying to predict things like sexual orientation. There's an idea that the more we feed faces into AI, the more we are giving up our privacy. And especially as these systems can understand where we are going at any moment in time, like every Mission Impossible movie. I do think there's something that's kind of good about that. But I also noticed that in the act, they specifically called out that law enforcement will still be able to utilize this toolkit for things that are happening in public spaces. They can't sort of look at your private home and how AI might read your face or an activity or a camera, but in public spaces they are. So do you have any thoughts on also just this idea of, you know, are we losing too much of ourselves as we are allowing computers to, you know, I keep thinking about the fact that all of my search history on ChatGPT, all of the images I generate on mid-journey, all of the things I'm feeding into those systems when I might want to create a custom GPT or a custom blend of an image, that somewhere there's giant databases of a lot of my own personal information that's being uploaded and my worry is up into a model. Sounds like social media, Sam. It sounds like social media. Tons of your personal data, things that you're saying, what you're doing, who you are, where you are, who you're texting. How is that different from Web 2 and everything that we put on the internet today? I think, honestly, the big difference is the amount of compute power being thrown at it is so exponentially larger and the ability for these models to literally suck in the entire internet. That's, I think, where my privacy concerns continue to go higher and higher. 
I think about just the realities of how many people even in the blockchain industry are still anon, right? And that like someone like a Satoshi created this thing before any of this happened where if someone created that now, I could see reverse engineering anonymity, which I think could be a big challenge for folks who require that for their own safety, political purposes, as well as just, you know, building businesses. So I'm just interested to see on, on where it goes. And I do think the EU is always a little bit of ahead of us in this. Yeah, for sure. I think it'll be something interesting to look at. The second story I wanted to chat with you about is, I don't know how anyone missed this last week, but, you know, there was a leaked trailer for the new Grand Theft Auto. And I don't know if you watched it, it takes place in Miami. I looked for you in the crowds. I couldn't find you. (laughs) But uh, it did seem like this got a lot of attention on social media. The thing that it highlighted for me, because I know you guys are really interested and focusing a lot in the immersive world space and the gaming space, but... Grand Theft Auto came out five years ago. The trailer just got leaked. It's still not out till 2025. So when you think about it, it's like seven years to do the next level of this property. It just shows you how hard it is actually to build one of these games. Grand Theft Auto V was, I believe, the best-selling individual title that's ever been out. I think it was like 1.2 billion in the first five days alone. So also like epic scale, right, of the way these things come. I think it's going to be a giant monster hit when it comes out. But you know, for those of like us who continually seem to be defaulting, oh, gaming is the future. What do you think about just the idea that like to create a true top tier title takes this long, you know, and how do you kind of manage your customers around it? Yeah, I think that craft really, really matters. And game developers have perfected, you know, understanding that split second makes all the difference, you know, thinking through the loops, thinking through the mechanics, thinking through the ways to engage gamers and surprise and delight them. You know, think about like the Star Wars sequels also take like so many years to get right. There's so much thinking, there's such large teams that go behind the scenes of pulling off something that's, you know, is delightful as Grand Theft Auto, as Star Wars, as a Game of Thrones. So I think that that's often underappreciated by these sort of scrappy entrepreneurs who stumbled upon a little taste of success because pulling off something of that magnitude is not easy to do. And it takes that craft, dedication, and large teams often. Sometimes, you know, lightning in a bottle does happen where it's like a small lo-fi game that just takes off and people love it. That certainly can happen as well. But I think that in the entertainment industry, anyone who's in this world like knows the level of perfectionism you have to be obsessed with to really do something that you can sell billions of copies of. So I think about it a lot. Like I think about, you know, entertainment titles or especially super beloved ones where every detail matters and is incredibly important. And in terms of the brand piece, right? You know, we were talking to Niantic last week, you know, many of the folks who are building games really think of this idea of them being distribution platforms where other people can build on top of or build into. And we're seeing more and more tools coming out for Roblox, more and more tools coming out for Fortnite, for Pokemon Go and other AR tools. I assume that if I'm a brand, knowing the amount of people coming in, that also like there's a big opportunity in how you weave yourself into some of these games, whether it's product placement, digital signage, digital ad networks. You know, how much are you guys trying to involve your clients in gameplay in the future? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. We actually just launched something last week with uh, Bubbly, which is a delicious sparkling water brand um, owned by PepsiCo. And uh, we worked with a game development team and a gamer called CreteCraft on Roblox. And there were these, you know, the Roblox sort of avatars. We did the first ever where the head actually was like a can of Bubbly and you could paint the town Bubbly and it was really fun. We actually chose to do that within an existing game. 
And the reason for that is a lot of times you look at like brands who are building their own experience on Roblox and they can be amazing. Shout out to Elf Cosmetics who just launched something that like did really, really well. So those can happen. But you also go to a lot of these brand experiences and they're totally ghost towns and no one's there. So it's that balance of deciding like, what is your real ambition? Are you trying to get, you know, a lot of people to engage with your brand deeply and have fun? And I think it was like 52,000 of these Roblox heads like sold out basically immediately, which was awesome. So you love to see it. And that wouldn't have happened if you build in your own place. Like if you build it, you've got to make it so outstanding and amazing. You're not just competing with other brands, you're competing with every other game developer on Roblox. So the incentive to get people there has to be really, really strong. And I think about this in sort of three ways. Like one, there's like participate where brands can do something that's fun. Maybe it's a small like mini game or something like that that exists within a, a broader environment. You could also do a virtual item. Those are really popular, these sort of UGC creations. And if you make a physical product, especially in fashion, that can make sense. Another kind of participation or you can sort of build your own thing. And that can go right and it can also not go right. And I think the investment levels are much higher for something like that. So there's no one size fits all. And then of course, you can also just show up with media. You know, there are these media packages from the immersive portal ads to just their sort of image ads. And I know that they're testing some video as well, audio as well. I sort of put that in the just like spreading your message bucket. But I think participating is a good strategy for a lot of brands who are keen, who want to dip their toes in, um, but maybe don't want to spend like, you know, recurring seven figures on building, maintaining something. Because at the end of the day, you know, marketers are not game developers. Those are two different skill sets. And you're going to need to partner with people who really understand how to develop those games and engage that community in a really authentic way. Do you look at the gaming industry for brands and advertisers as being more the next level of experiential or the next level of display? Uh, more experiential, but I think display will play a part. Just like, you know, anyone who plays Candy Crush sees those little ads like all the time, like mm -hmm. wherever eyeballs go, brands are right behind and that's going to continue to happen. And I think those display placements are probably just shifting away from, as we know, like programmatic publisher things that are not as in vogue as they were 10 years ago to in-game environments. And, you know, of course it has to be native and interesting and exciting, but ads still work, ads move units, ads sell products. But I think experiential is that probably like next level that's exciting and really interesting for brands. And it's probably more creative than media centric. And it would sound like, I mean, I was reading an article last week about how programmatic is falling more and more out of favor just because of like just all of the waste and the lack of targeting. But it feels like, hey, you know, you know who's going to be playing GTA 6. And so you can really kind of like understand your audience. And so the idea of buying in, even if it's just brand building, seems great. Exactly. And I think that we're seeing, you know, if you look at something like Fortnite, they've done a really nice job of integrating a lot of brand partners there. We see the same thing with Roblox. And then there's so many other sort of more traditional games, like I just mentioned Candy Crush, or, you know, there's a gazillion of them and they have media packages and they're very happy to both do things that are off the shelf, but also tailored for the right level of investment. All right, Avery, let's talk a little bit about our puzzle. You had a lot of events, as we talked about earlier, that none of which I, I got to come to which is a cry moment for myself. But like, what was your general take on it? And I want to hear about it through the lens of how brands participated, that audience and kind of how you capture that audience's attention. And then it did seem like there was still a fair amount of Web3. And so I just wanted to get your kind of takes on all three of those. So Miami Art Week was amazing. I know everybody calls it Art Basel and Art Basel is really the 
spark of what brings people to Miami Art Week. But for our Gen Z community, most of you all will be familiar with Art Basel so much more than just art and Basel. Um, One, it's just become like a cultural crossroads, like, you know, artists, athletes, musicians, fashion designers, the Web3 community, the marketing community, so many different communities come out because this is really this sort of cultural crossroads. And the fairs are incredible. Sam, I don't know if you've got a chance to check out any of them, but Design Miami is always my favorite. I love Untitled. I thought they did a really nice job this year. I didn't make it to NADA, sadly, but I did get to go to Art Miami in context as well as the main fair at Basel. And they're outstanding, both in terms of like the quality of art and also the quality of activations. I think every year we see more and more brands activating at Basel and it's literally everyone from Birkenstocks to Kohler to Chase to Capital One to like, you name it, every spirits brand, fashion brand under the sun, Hugo Boss to Celine to Lamborghini to BMW, like that is the place to be for culture. And I think that we've also seen this sort of marketing community galvanize in during Miami Art Week as well. Like the Female Quotient did an awesome event where they gave us a tour of the fair. Patau, Brand Innovators both hosted things. It was kind of nice to see a lot of CMOs down at Art Basel, which is not something that we have seen, I think, like all the time. And as you noted, the crypto community, the NFT community is still going very strong. We hosted a really nice event in the Mammoth Garden with the Coinbase folks and their institutional clients and partners, which was awesome. A little bit more of a, you know, elevated crowd, um, but institutional interest in crypto continues to grow, both from a brand perspective and a financial institution perspective, fund perspective, for sure. So it's nice to see some exciting movement there. And, you know, in the NFT community and crowd, Pudgy Penguins did something. They actually did a really fun partnership with Nix, which is awesome. That was also shared on social. We saw Rug Radio, who merged with Decrypt, which is cool. They did this awesome Our House thing that I think was very well received. We saw artists, you know, like a Dave Krugman or Jay and Silva doing their own sort of activations with their communities. Thank You X did a really cool unveiling of his exhibition. And we can't forget the Gateway by NFT Now, which they did at the Fiena Forum, um, was really well done and featured some incredible like digital arts. Like this wonderful piece by Rafiq Anadol, who, you know, has been gaining a lot of renown after his piece at the MoMA really took off that ultimately MoMA acquired, which is awesome. So all of that to say, there was a lot of things happening. And three big things that stood out to me is Art Basel is more than just art. It's really for everyone. Art collecting as a general hobby actually continues to increase in terms of cultural cachet, whether people just want to flex and be like, I know about this cool emerging artist or they want to show it off in their walls. And third, and probably most important, I think that the scaling these events on social media is really the unlock for brands. You know, of course, like we're hosting these awesome things, whether it's a dinner with Chase or a brunch with Cool Man Dan and Crocs, and those are amazing for the hundred people who get to go. But the millions of people who get to see it on social media is a real opportunity. And I think brands are starting to take note of that. Saw Delta Airlines flew down a, a plane full of influencers and, you know, did a nice job capturing that content, bringing them to their event. I think brands are catching on to that fact that actually events can be a content generator and engine. So it was a wonderful week. Crypto crowd showed up strong. Brand crowd showed up strong. So two of my favorite things all coming to one place. Plus I got to look at some art. But Sam, what did you think? I thought there's two things that stood out to me. It Last year felt actually like the brand activations were bigger than they were this year. Yeah. But I think to your point, this year they were more elevated. So the ones that did them, I think, had more intention. And I think we're 
sort of curated a lot more for their audiences versus kind of just like larger invite all moments. Can I double tap on that? Because that was actually our strategy at Vayner as well. Like over the last two years, we've done like, you know, some large parties that are, you know, you could request an invite, but like there were thousands of people there. And this year we didn't do that at all. Like our maximum size of an event was probably like 150 people. So you know, the reason that we made that shift this year, and by the way, I do think there's value in doing the, you know, the nylon party type things, but we wanted to sort of deliver like fewer, more impactful, more integrated events that we did a great job capturing content of. So we actually made that shift as well for our own sort of event strategy. Well, you know, it's so interesting that you say this because I remember I had Discovery Channel was a client of mine for years while I had my agency. And I remember the moment where we started putting social amplification and social coverage as part of our experiential strategy. We did a ton of experiential. And I remember the first time going to them and saying, I know we're promoting Shark Week. It was like 2008. And I said, part of our strategy has to be how this is going to get shared on Facebook. And it was that moment of, which was a real unlock again, 2008, where like the idea that social becomes the way that most people experience your brand event and activation is so key that people, I think, are starting to get, but it's, 15 years later, and I think you hit it on the head, which is if you have the right 150 people in the room, they can have reach beyond the thousand that might come to your large event. And you've cut your expenses down by 80% in order to do it. And I think that's something that like really is a different way of thinking. You don't need the giant event. I saw so many Instagram, TikTok, and like LinkedIn influencers like everywhere doing and covering and recapping. And I think that invite is frankly just so much more important for exponential opportunity. Right. And the audience is such a valuable audience, right? They're wealthy, they're affluent, they're traveling, they're fashionable, they're beautiful. Like you have all the things you want at an Art Basel, you know, and it kind of feels like the old days of South by had some of that, but I think that's lesser a little bit compared. Whereas I think Art Basel, I think we talked about this last year, sorry, Miami Art Week is one of the places that that audience is moving to, both brands and consumers, yes. just to be part of it. I also think you hit on something which is really important for our audience to recognize, which is it's not just art, it's also in watches, it's also in wines. Like a younger audience is getting more into alternative collectibles as an investment vehicle. And I think that's something that you're talking about correctly, which is, hey, you're going to be at scope, you're going to be at untitled, you're going to see something cool, maybe it is within your price range, maybe you want to buy your first piece, that's $3,000, you can find something that you can put on your wall. And it is a bit of a flex. But you also get to be early into something that feels like you've made it right, which I think is like part of what the younger audience wants to be able to rep on their own socials on their own, you know, when they're having their dinner parties. So I think that's also something that that is a key insight that brands should take note of that that audience wants to play in that environment. Yeah. And it's not just the younger audience. It's like, you know, I saw a lot of professional athletes and sort of like entrepreneurs, like also looking to build their collection and looking to show it off on social as well. It's like, great. They got this piece by this artist. And, you know, of course they're looking for feedback from curators and from the gallerists and like, what's the right piece. And I thought that that was just really interesting. So I think if I think to myself 10 or 15 years ago, like art collecting was not on my radar. Like I was, you know, interested in going to museums, but it was not something I was thinking about spending $3,000 on. And, you know, I talked to younger Avery's and like, it is something that they're thinking about. Like they're thinking about investing in, which is also a sort of a different mindset that I think like millennials had. Yes, I do want to do a very traditional do your own research, not financial advice. Yes. Because I do think, you know, art is different that you have to love it and want to put it on your wall, right? I mean, I invested starting in art in my early 20s 
and I bought a lot. You were much more sophisticated than me, <laughs> of course. I don't know about that, but some of the pieces have done great and some of them just look good on the wall and you, you know, you spend your money and that's it. Our art advice is buy what you love. That's what the curators always say too, right? 100%. Do not buy this thinking it will go up because it might not. <laughs> well, that and the other thing is a lot of trend in art is meant for Instagram these days. I still saw a, yeah. a huge amount of like neon, right? And neon never really resells well, <laughs> but right. it looks great on your wall and you get to say, I have a piece by X, right? So I think just thinking about that, which is that we were all very susceptible to marketing, even in art, wine, watches, jewelry, clothing. Like it's, you know, part of your investment strategy has to be to do the research across all of these. Avery, we're going to wrap it up. So good seeing you. Um, looking forward to our next guest. And I'm upset we didn't see each other in Miami, but I'm hoping we see each other soon at an event or somewhere else soon. Absolutely. Gen C, thanks for tuning in. Let us know what you thought about Art Basel slash Miami Art Week. If you were there or if you just saw it on social media, like Sam, if you just saw things on TikTok or if you're actually there, we'd love to hear your insights. And as always, hope you all have a wonderful week. Bye.